Hi, welcome to Cochrane Alliance Church and our online sermons. We are so glad you are able to join us. We pray that this sermon will be a blessing and an encouragement to you this week. Uh, let me uh, pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the work that you do in our lives. We are so grateful for the Holy Spirit whom you have sent uh, to convict us and to encourage us, to empower us, to uh, be made more like Jesus in every area of our life. And so I pray today in this space, in this place, that we would hear from you, that whatever it is that we are meant to receive today, we would receive from you. And so, Lord Jesus, we are here for you, and we are eagerly expecting your Holy Spirit to do a work in us and through us, and so we invite that work to occur. And so we say these things in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a statistic out there uh, that has remained fairly constant for a lot of years. It's a statistic that the Barna Group puts out every couple of years or so, and it's related to a survey that they do with, and the title of the survey or the, the theme of the survey is Non-Christians Perceptions of Christians. And year after year after year, non-believers respond on the survey you know, if they are asked, like, what is it that you don't like about Christians, essentially, is the question. They might phrase it a little nicer than that, but that's the question. And year after year after year, it comes back with this. Christians are judgmental and hypocritical. And a third one was added that was right up there this past year, which is Christians are too political. But for year after year after year, that's been the, the criticism. And the survey that was done this year in 2023, 49% of non-Christians said Christians were hypocritical and 48% said Christians were judgmental. Now we can nuance this data, right? Just because you have statistics or data doesn't mean that tells the whole story. We can maybe nuance this and we can say, well, you know what? Some people just disagree with our moral stance on certain issues and they see that as being too judgmental. And that's probably true in some cases. Or we might say, you know what? They hold us to this standard of moral perfection and then call us hypocrites when we turn out to be human and make mistakes, unable to fully live out our ideals, and they call that hypocritical. And, you know, that's not really fair to us as we're just fellow humans trying to, you know, live life well. And I think there's fairness to these critiques of, the, of this data. Yet, I still think as Christians, we need to hear this criticism, we need to think about it, and we need to weigh it to see if there is some validity to it. Because I do know some Christians, and maybe you know them as well, who wield truth, not truth with grace, but they wield truth like a sledgehammer. And it seems like the reason they want to tell everyone how wrong they are is because they just want to beat people into submission. I don't know if you've met people like that, but I have. Uh, unlike Jesus, who came full of truth and full of grace, they come full of truth and full of anger. And so when you have that, you can see why there's a little bit of a perception problem. And whenever I personally receive critique or criticism, I want to weigh it carefully to see if there's validity in that critique. Sometimes there is validity, sometimes there isn't. I go, this is just completely out of nowhere, it doesn't make any sense, they're assuming things about me that they can't possibly know, and it's not true. But oftentimes critique or criticism is a bit of a mixture, right? It's, it's a little bit, it's got some kernels of truth covered with their own perceptions and biases and nuances. And so I tend to think that this survey data that we keep getting year after year after year, that Christians are too judgmental and, and too hypocritical, um, is kind of a mixture of valid critique and unfair perceptions. And yet because this critique has remained so constant for so many years, I do think it's something that we should weigh with some consideration as believers. Because I know that for anyone who is religious, as we are, 
we are religious. We are in a religious building. We are in a church service. Anyone who is religious, there is a temptation towards self-righteousness. Now, the root problem of being harsh in your judgment and being hypocritical in your lifestyle, as much as those things are bad, there's actually a root problem. And the root problem is self-righteousness. This is what Jesus is critiquing the religious leaders of his day on. They are harsh in their judgment towards others, and they are hypocritical in how they live, but it's actually stemming from their sense of self-righteousness, this sense of, I can do no wrong. Self-righteousness, if I was to define it, is when a person feels superior to others due to some action or behavior on their part that they see as better or good. And when people are self-righteous... They aren't getting their sense of righteousness from themselves, despite the the name self-righteousness. They're actually not getting their sense of righteousness from themselves. They're getting it from others. Because what self-righteous people do is they actively compare themselves to other people, and in their own eyes, they find themselves to be better than everyone else, making other people around them feel inferior, but making them feel superior. And we normally view self-righteous people as just sort of annoying to be around, right? I mean, who wants to be looked down on all the time? I remember when we were new parents, and you go to like some of these parenting places, and you get these parents who are like, oh, we would never use disposable diapers. We use cloth. And they do it in that way of like, kind of like, I'm not criticizing you, but I'm criticizing you. I mean, that's just annoying, right? Like nobody wants to be around that. I've also been around Christians who, who are like that. Oh, you, uh, you believe in that doctrine? Okay, well, you know, the Bible clearly teaches something else, you know. One of those things where it's like, hey, this is up for interpretation, you know. We can, we can land on two different places here. So there's a real annoyance when you have, find someone who's kind of that self-righteous type of person. They're not pleasant to be around. And, and we kind of see it as just an annoying kind of character trait. But self-righteousness is actually incredibly dangerous to have in our hearts when it comes to our spiritual life. Because self-righteousness makes people rely on their own goodness rather than on God's saving grace. And essentially, a self-righteous person is no longer looking to God for salvation, but is instead looking to their own good works and deeds, which is literally a death sentence. Self-righteousness actually prevents repentance because if you're good enough, what do you have to repent from? If everything is going, if you know everything and you're doing everything right, why would you need repentance? And so it actually blinds you to what might be going on internally. And it also prevents true love because it's really hard to love others with a genuine love when you're busy comparing yourself to them and going, yeah, I'm better than that person. Yeah, I'm better than that person. They're not going to feel loved and you're not going to be able to love them. So Jesus tells a parable to illustrate the issue of self-righteousness. Luke introduces it like this. It's in uh, Luke chapter 18, if you want to read along with me. It'll also be on the screen. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show the... Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. Verse 9. I said verse 1. It's verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So sometimes when Jesus tells a parable, he's sort of making an exaggerated statement, right? He he does this exaggeration of, of something that's happening to kind of make a point. 
So you might think that the prayer of this Pharisee is an exaggerated prayer. Like who would actually pray out loud next to another person and say, thank you, God, that I'm not like this miserable sinner who's standing right here next to me? Who would actually do that? But the more that I've done some research on this, I'm like, I think this is one of those parables where Jesus is not using exaggeration. They actually prayed like this. Here's a prayer from the actual rabbinic literature. It's the Babylonian Talmud. And the prayer that is scripted out says this. I thank thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast put my part with those who sit in the academy and not with those who sit at the corners, the money changers and the tax collectors. For I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to the words of the law and they to vain things. I labor and they labor. I labor and receive a reward. They labor and receive no reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. Wow, okay. Have you ever prayed like that? Oh, Lord. You're lucky to have a guy like me. I am the best person that I know. I am better than almost everybody out there. So you're welcome, God. Right? Like that's, that's the gist of this. This is the actual prescribed prayer. And, and it's basically the same theme as the Pharisee in the story. Like, thank you, Lord, that I am so good and so great and not like those other sinners. They're despicable. And so you actually see that the Pharisee in this parable is disguising praise for himself in the form of thanks towards God. And I think our instinct is to be a little bit disgusted with the attitude of the Pharisee in the parable because he seems so arrogant. And it's so arrogant, it's offensive. But can I just point out to you that most churches would welcome a man like this? When, when the Pharisee prayed, I fast twice a week, well, that happens to be true. Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted Monday and Thursday of every week. When he says, I give tithes of all I possess, what he means is he's tithing on the gross and not on the net. He's going beyond the law of Moses. He's tithing on every single thing and not even on the things he has to, but even things he doesn't. He's giving beyond. And when he says, I'm not a crook, he really isn't a crook. When he says, I'm not like this filthy tax collector, well, as offensive as that is to say to the guy standing next to you, that's very true. He's not like that guy. When he says, I don't commit adultery, he doesn't. He's faithful to his wife. When he says, I'm honest, I'm faithful, I'm zealous for my religion, he means every word of it, and every word of it is true. He is a truly, genuinely, religiously zealous man, as most Pharisees were. He was a devout, religious, pious man. And so what we are to understand is this. When he prayed, he was telling the truth. When he basically said, Lord, you're lucky to have a guy like me because I'm one of the best guys I know, it was kind of true. He really was a religiously wonderful guy. And if this man were to come into a church and maybe refrain from that horribly self-righteous prayer, you know, that he just kept that one to himself, we would absolutely see him as a pillar of Christian maturity and faith, a man to look up to and admire. Look at him. He fasts twice a week, every week without fail. Look at him. He gives. He gives more than he even needs to give. And yet Jesus says this guy is in worse shape than the despicable tax collector who cheats, lies, and steals. But if you, I mean, if you're honestly answering, who would you rather have in church? The guy who ties more than 10% and has a perfectly clean record, or the liar, the cheat, and the thief of a tax collector who probably spends money on prostitutes and drinks to excess? Well, the choice most of us would make, if we're being really honest, is pretty clear. We want that clean, living, high-tithing guy. But the choice Jesus is presenting to us is actually not a good man versus a bad man. That's maybe where the parable gets flipped. It's not about a good man versus a bad man or like a slightly bad man versus a really bad man. The, the, what Jesus is presenting here is, in fact, two sinful men. 
And the difference between them is one recognizes his sin and need for salvation, the tax collector, and there's another man who does not recognize his sin and doesn't recognize his need for salvation, the Pharisee. And put that way, we would probably pick the sinner looking for salvation all the time. But if we look at outward appearances, we would be willing to overlook a little self-righteousness to have a quality guy like the Pharisee become a member of the church. And I think it's because we often don't see how truly terrible self-righteousness can be. And self-righteousness is one of the most difficult sins to recognize within ourselves because it disguises itself as obedience to Scripture and firm convictions about the truth. It allows us to look down on others who just don't get it like we do. And I think that's why Christians are actually particularly prone to this, this self-righteousness that then, then becomes, you know, in the broader public seen as judgmentalism and hypocrisy. But Christians are particularly prone to it because, you know, we discern right from wrong. We have a genuine desire to obey the Lord. And, and often, you know, if, if we don't have a heart check, if we don't have someone kind of pointing out some things in us, we can tend to go a little self-righteous in our pursuit of faith. <clears throat> I don't know if anyone's on Twitter or whatever, it's called X now, but I follow a lot of Christians on there because I, I find all sorts of cool resources, but I also just follow random Christians. Christians are some of the meanest people I've ever seen online. Uh, like, I have never seen, like, hatred and anger and mocking like I've seen Christians do to other Christians. Like, it's, it's wild. And I know that Twitter's just a small little space, but these are people who are well-known. Like, if I was to say some of the names, you know, they write books, they preach large churches, and the things that they say, <clears throat> I mean, the reason they feel like they can mock people, the reason they feel that they can look down on other people, the reason they feel that they have a right to um, kind of viciously attack and criticize people who don't agree with them is because of self-righteousness. They 100% believe they're right and that God's on their side. And as soon as you're in that camp, you can do no wrong. No one can point anything out to you because you go, well, me and God, we're best buds. I, I can't do any wrong here. You're, if you disagree with me, you're the one who is wrong. So self-righteousness leads you into this really judgmental, um, kind of angry behavior. And the problem with self-righteousness is that instead of comparing yourself to God's holy and perfect standard, you're only comparing yourself to others, using your own metrics. And if you do that, you can make yourself look pretty good. Yet if you fall into that trap, you're, you're actually forsaking grace because then you're relying on your own goodness. You're comparing our deeds to others as a metric for how good you are. You're not comparing it to God's standard. And this behavior rooted in self-righteousness actually denies God's grace and returns us to works of the law. If we become overly enamored with our own moral goodness, we tend to be suspicious of God's grace towards others. For God's grace is actually inviting the very people we compare ourselves to and say, well, they're not as good as me. And God's grace invites those people to the table and says, they're welcome at the table too, just as you are. And just as you were once blind and lost and saved by grace, well, so are they. And just as you were welcome at the table, so are they. But if we become overly enamored of our own moral goodness, we don't want those people at our table. Because our table is for the pure and the righteous, not these people. We put ourselves above where we actually are. Which is just, you know, as one person said, and I can't remember who said it, one blind beggar telling another blind beggar where to find food. And so I think what we have is a really amazing picture of God's grace when we think about the story of the thief on the cross. This thief is, is beside Jesus on the cross, and the one guy is mocking Jesus, and then there's this other thief. And the thief is a guy who's sentenced to die with Jesus because he is a criminal. 
He's there because law and justice of the day are punishing him for his legitimate crimes. And I'm assuming if he's up on the cross, you know, he's not kind of the gentle robber who's like, oh, I'm like Robin Hood, I take from the poor, take from the rich to give to the poor. I mean, this is probably a bad dude. He's probably hurt some people. He's probably, maybe he's beat up some people. You know, he's a bad guy. And he's on the cross next to Jesus. And all he does is he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. Now notice this, the thief did not follow Jesus before this. He didn't get baptized. He probably never attended a synagogue in his adult life. Yet all he has to do is at the very end of his life is say, remember me. And Jesus says, yes, you will be saved. Now, if you really think about that, does that irritate you just a little bit? There's this resentment that the thief could live the kind of life he did, and at the end of his life, he could just cry out to Jesus and be forgiven. And I think the reason why some people might even resent the thief on the cross is because it just doesn't seem quite fair. Everything we know about this guy seems to go against, well, what does it go against? It goes against earning your way to heaven. It goes against taking some of the credit for your own salvation. It even kind of seems to go against justice. It certainly goes against the prayer of the Pharisee in this parable who told God he was so thankful he wasn't like the robbers. It goes against the idea that fasting or tithing or performing religious rituals such as praying in the temple or being better than the next guy can somehow improve my standing with God. And when we really think about the thief on the cross, we might think, well, that's not fair. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. And it's just an honest assessment question. Do you, do you think that it's fair? But if we have this idea that, well, he didn't deserve it, he didn't earn it, and you can think about other people in your life. They don't deserve it. They haven't done anything. But then we are missing out on what God's grace really is, which is a free gift that we cannot earn and we cannot deserve. Ephesians 2.8, the famous passage, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the free gift of God. And this brings us to verse 14, where Jesus tells us what resulted from these two men's prayer, prayers. Verse 14 is a 14 that kind of either encourages us or convicts us. And these are the words of Jesus. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. And so the Pharisee went home exactly as he came. Proud, self-righteous, completely unchanged. But the tax collector went home a different man, justified before God. What does it mean to be justified before God? It means God declares a sinful person to be right before him. Sin is forgiven, shame is lifted, mercy and grace are poured out. And it's not based on our goodness or on what we've done to earn it, but simply based on Jesus' righteousness and our faith in him. He takes our sin and he covers us with righteousness. The Apostle Paul explains this salvation and justification in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. He says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood, and God declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And then in verse 27, Paul asks this question, which is really relevant to the parable we're studying today. He says, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it is based on faith. 
So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. He'll go on to say, so then should we sin all the more so grace should abound all the more? By no means. You are saved through faith to live the life you were always created in Christ to live, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live in a way that somewhat looks like Jesus. But what we see in the parable is that self-righteousness is self-deception. This Pharisee who was so good at religion, and he was good at religion, he was almost perfect. He was still lost before God. Because what the Pharisee didn't realize in his self-deception is that he needed to become like the tax collector, understanding his own lostness and his own sinfulness in order to be justified before God. But as long as he remained unlike the tax collector, he would never experience God's true forgiveness. So by giving this parable, Jesus is saying to those, it starts out this way, right? Luke tells us Jesus was saying to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, He's saying at the end of the parable, take your cues from this tax collector whom you despise and look down on. Follow his example, not in sin, but in confession. Pray like he prays. Approach me like he approaches me. Aware of the harm he has done to others. Aware of the harm he's done to himself. And aware that his life is lacking without God's grace and forgiveness. And we are all to come to God this way, not so that we feel badly about ourselves, but so that we can hand over the sin and the shame that we carry to the God who desires to forgive us and cleanse us and make us new creations. Because it is not God's desire to shame us, but to cleanse us. And it is not God's desire to crush us, but to heal us. Yet if we cannot admit that we are sick, we won't receive healing. We should remember today that Jesus is addressing this parable to those who are confident of their own righteousness. And so if I am to represent this passage accurately, then the most impactful words that I can say from this passage need to be especially addressed to those who are confident of their own righteousness. Now, Jesus is not telling this parable to condemn those self-righteous people. I think sometimes we get that, like, oh, Jesus is just condemning those self-righteous jerks. It's not what he's doing. He's teaching them. He's giving them this parable to teach them what it really takes to experience the kingdom of heaven. And so I think we just acknowledge that within the church, we have a mixture of people who are like the Pharisees, confident of their own righteousness, and we have people who are like the tax collector, knowing they fall short in a lot of ways, and both are working through their own issues. Some are still caught in sin and trying to find a way out. Others are caught in self-righteousness and trying to find out what that looks like. And so the goal of the church is not to condemn one group and exalt the other, because that's a way you could read this parable, like, oh, just exalt the tax collector, condemn the, the Pharisee. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's a teaching moment. The goal of the church is is not to condemn one and exalt the other. We're here to say all are welcome into the kingdom through the work of Jesus on the cross for them. And let me just, as we come to the end here, talk about the Apostle Paul. Because he is one Pharisee in the Bible who found saving faith. We know there's other Pharisees who did too, but the Apostle Paul we have the most stuff on, right? And Paul's life is a really interesting one, especially when we contrast it with the prayer of this Pharisee in this parable, because it seems that Paul knew the type of mercy that the tax collector experienced, but Paul also knew what it was like to be like this Pharisee, confident in his ability to be good and obey the law. Now, Paul understood God's mercy. Let's start there. Paul understood mercy like the tax collector understood mercy. He writes to Timothy, his protege, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I love that he says, I am the worst. Not, I was the worst, I have been the worst. He says, I am. And this is towards later parts of his life. So the more he grows in Christ's likeness, actually the more aware he grows of his own sinfulness. 
so that he can continue to die to self every day. Bring it to Jesus every day. Lay it down every day and say, I need the Holy Spirit power today because I am the worst. But for that very reason, Paul continues, I was showing mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. We see here that Paul's sense of self-righteousness led him to violence. He was so certain that he was right and so certain that he was doing God's will in persecuting the church because he was self-righteous. He said, well, of course I could do no wrong. I believe that these Christians are dangerous and they should be hunted down. And his self-righteousness blinded him. Yet in his self-righteous religious terrorism, that's really what it was, God intervened to bring grace and truth and Paul, the worst of sinners, received mercy from God. Now I want to look at another passage where Paul shares about being the most religious of the religious, the best of the best, and shares how this had no saving merit before God. He writes, we put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. He goes on, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul's not bragging here. He's making a point. He's saying, if you think you have an impressive religious resume, well, mine is better. But my religious efforts weren't good enough. And if mine aren't, neither are yours. And after listing all the religious stuff he's done, after giving us a list of all of his good deeds, Paul then says this, I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And so interestingly, Paul says, I had to discard the religious stuff to become one with Christ. I couldn't do it if I relied on, on the religious law. It would prevent me from coming to Christ. So it's not even that Paul abandoned his religious resume. He was actually disgusted by it. He says, this is garbage. Compared with knowing Christ Jesus, religious duty is it's empty. It's nothing. And so in other words, Paul's saying that he had this big, impressive list of religious accomplishments, but that didn't make him righteous before God. He had to forget all those religious accomplishments and, and being born, you know, a, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. He has to forget all of that and simply approach God as a sinner, accepting a right standing before God that could only be granted to him through faith in Jesus Christ, not through the law. And so I really like to say that religion is useless compared with knowing Jesus. Now, we're religious people. Can't get away from that. But if Jesus is not the focus of our religion, then our religion is useless. It has no value, no benefit. Paul says he obeyed the law without fault, but even that was garbage compared with knowing Jesus. And the Apostle Paul finishes his discussion on his old way of life being garbage by saying this, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. And that's really what we see in baptism, is we see a person saying, I can't do it on my own. I can't do this life on my own. I need to die to that old life. And I need to be raised to newness of life. And it's not even just newness of life. In the scripture, it's union with Christ. It means you are now one with him. He indwells you by the Holy Spirit. And that's a new 
life. I'm going to call the worship team up just as we close here. But kind of as a reminder for us, it's pretty clear that Scripture teaches us that all our good deeds and religious observances are not enough to earn or deserve salvation. And that's why the sinner went home a saint and the saint went home still a sinner. We cannot rely on ourselves. We cannot rely on being good or even being religious. We can only rely upon the grace of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us on the cross, who died in our place to make us new creations and children of God sealed by the Holy Spirit. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. And so two takeaways from this parable today. Number one, allow the Holy Spirit to point out any self-righteousness in our hearts and don't be deceived because it might look like firm conviction and piousness, but if it makes us look down on others or compare our deeds to others, it's spiritual cancer. If it makes us look down our noses at other believers and say they're just, they don't get it like I get it, that's an attitude to be aware of. And number two, meditate on God's amazing grace. This free gift that you cannot earn and you cannot deserve. You can only receive. And it's given to everyone. It's a gift that's being offered to every single person. Regardless of whether you think they deserve it or not, God is offering it. A grace that cannot be earned or deserved, but only received as a gift through faith. Just think about that grace. Every time I think about God's grace towards me, I'm amazed that he would offer me this gift. And I think today, maybe it's just an awareness or a a re-awareness of God's amazing grace for you. I can't believe that I was given this free gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. You know, you might think, well, I was born in the church. I was baptized at the age of five, whatever. I think we just come back and go, there's this free gift. And God gave it to me. That's really amazing. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to worship together. Heavenly Father, your grace is amazing. And it's hard to even understand the depths of it the breadths of it, how how deep it goes in our lives. So Lord, I pray that we'd be people of grace. I pray that when we interact with the people in the world around us, they would know that we are for them and not against them because you are for them and not against them. You want to see them come to saving faith. And so Lord, let us be full of truth and full of grace. Let us understand the grace that we have received and then extend that grace to others. Freely we've received, freely we give. I ask these things in your name, Jesus, amen. Let's worship together.